and our program has completely broken this down into step-by-step -step procedures for controlling uh, the outcome uh, of the post-x-rays and how to modify your table placement for each individual uh, atypical component. So that was, a, that was a very big advancement for a lot of doctors. And any of these uniquenesses that we've developed, implemented in a single practice, will show improvement in the doctor's results. If the doctor can implement all of the improvements, then it's a complete practice-changing experience. And we've had Blair doctors train here with us, phonology doctors come train. And everything that I just mentioned with the uh, the improvements we've made have um, have definitely advanced any grostic-based technique. Like I said, we've even had Blair guys come here and, and try to figure out how to uh, you know, improve their quality of care. Hi, this is Dr. Paul Hambrick of UpperCervicalDocs.com, and you are about to hear an interview I did with Dr. Stan Pierce, Jr. of St. Petersburg, Florida. Dr. Stan is the son of Dr. P Stan Pierce, Sr., founder of the Advanced Orthogonal Techniques and Procedures. Dr. Stan has been a chiropractor since the year 2000, and in that short time has made many contributions to the field of upper cervical chiropractic. He is the seminar director of the AOTP program, the discoverer and lead researcher of the head height angle, developer of the axial x-ray, a fourth generation upper cervical chiropractor, and the director of doctors at the Pierce Clinic of Chiropractic in St. Petersburg, Florida. In this interview, Dr. Stan discusses the history of his family's involvement with upper cervical chiropractic going all the way back to the Palmers, how AOTP came to be, including issues with the original Atlas Orthogonal Program. We also discuss the many advancements that have been made in upper cervical work and projects currently on the table. This interview is about 80 minutes long. Please enjoy. Hello? Hey, Stan. Hey, Paul. It's Paul. Okay, Stan, I'd uh, like to start off with uh, you just telling a little bit about yourself. Uh, what made you decide to become a chiropractor? Tell about, uh, you know, growing up and uh, so on and so forth. Well, I was born in St. Petersburg, Florida, and I went to school uh, two blocks away. went to church three blocks away. I stayed in St. Pete my whole life. Uh, and the uh, first time I left St. Pete for any length of time was moving to uh, Marietta to go to Life University because uh, I heard they were starting up a soccer program. I did not go up there to go into chiropractic. In fact, uh, I had never intended to go into chiropractic. I was going to go into law enforcement or FBI work or something to that effect. Uh, but I did have a passion for soccer. I played since I was four and a half, and I wanted to uh, play collegiate soccer. So I tried out. Uh, I'd heard they were just starting a team up there, and uh, I made the team. And I guess about... Well, I pursued a bachelor's degree in nutrition, and about two years into that, I decided uh, I wanted to go into chiropractic because I was—I had my own personal miracle uh, occur just with my knee, uh, recovering from some chiropractic care up there, and it reminded me of all the miracles I'd seen growing up from uh, my father doing uh, Atlas Chiropractic. Um, I ran into a very interesting dilemma, though, because when I went to enter chiropractic school, I had no idea that anybody adjusted anything but the atlas. <laughs> I thought that all chiropractors did atlas chiropractic. I did not know of all the other techniques performed. And so I remember when I uh, was just a few weeks into the chiropractic program, I called my father 
and said to him, Dad, you are not going to believe all the advancements that they have made in chiropractic since you were in school. They now adjust everything, even below the atlas. And uh, he was uh, kind of laughing a little bit, and I said, uh, but don't worry, Dad, I am going to learn all of it, and I will come home and show it to you and update you, basically, in, in, the, in the new procedures. And he was very, uh, very polite, and he, uh, he encouraged me to be open-minded and learn everything I possibly could. And when I got further into the program, we would talk more about it. So I entered into the classes at Life, uh, once again, intrigued by all these different techniques and all the different manipulations and areas of the spine and torquing of the human body. And uh, I had one problem, though. And that was that with the, within the first few days of each new technique class, I would ask the same question. And that was, how well do your patients hold the adjustment you give them? And each teacher seemed very irritated at this question. Frustrated, irritated, angered. I had several people say, oh, you're an atlas. You must be an atlas guy. And in reality, I was just a student trying to figure out which techniques were most effective for helping people. Mm. But I came to find out in chiropractic school that holding alignment was never the key concept of care. It was always moving bones, moving bones, as though adjusting people was our job rather than getting people to the point where they didn't need to be adjusted, where their body could stay in its own alignment. So it was a real eye-opener, um, and I, I did get a passion for corrective care uh, when I was about halfway through chiropractic school and really started devoting my uh, myself to learning the atlas work as good as possible and I had no idea at the time that not only did my father um, possess an incredibly brilliant technique but he also was one of the top people in delivering that technique in the world and uh, I became more appreciative of that as I went through. Your dad is Stan Pierce Sr. Correct. Yeah. So your experience going to chiropractic school is uh, opposite from the average person then, because most people go thinking that, uh, you know, like the general public does, that it's just all a bunch of uh, pop and cracking and snapping, and you, uh, and then they're surprised to know that people specialize uh, in certain areas, and uh, you, you had the exact opposite uh, experience. Right. In fact, I remember speaking with one of my friends named Bruce on a particular visit where. Um, we were in school, and he had just finished with his patients in clinic, and, and I asked him how his clinic experience went, and he said, oh, great, everything adjusted wonderfully, and I asked him if he was interested in learning a technique that could, get, that could get people to hold the adjustment, and he was quite confused, but we talked about that a little bit, and he said, well, uh, you know, Stan, I've got to be honest with you, you know, if, if you get everybody holding their adjustment, you're coming out of here with student loans just like me, if they're all holding you know, what are you going to do to keep them coming back? And I said to him, I said, well, I said, Bruce, you can see either the same people all the time because nothing's being truly fixed and everything continues to have to be adjusted, or you can see a ton of people very few times because you're actually fixing them. Mm. And I remember saying to him, you know, which, which group of patients do you think is going to be happier? And the people that are having to keep coming back all the time for constant relief care or people that are actually being corrected? You know, and it makes it more cost-effective for them, but they're going to be referring like crazy, mm. and they're going to be paying their bills. Uh, they're they're going to be paying for their treatment gladly 
because they see a longevity of improvement that you've you've accomplished in them that's very unique and special. So yeah, it was very different from most of my friends, which did provide an interesting platform for a lot of discussions. You know, and I never looked at, you know, I was still trying to figure it out too. I didn't, once again, I didn't know which was the better approach when I first started chiropractic school. But the the whole curriculum really sets doctors up, even with the, the CE changes where they made that you don't get credit for a patient holding their alignment. Mm. You only get credit for doing adjustments. And I, I realized the whole curriculum is, is setting doctors up to just do adjustments every visit. Right. So it's frustrating. But I'm glad I got through it with uh, preserving my uh, my background and what I knew to be right. You're a uh, fourth-generation chiropractor, right? Correct. Tell us about that. How far back and uh, who and what and all that. Okay, let's see. My father, grandfather, great-grandfather, great-aunt, great-uncle, great-aunt were all chiropractors. I have an uncle and three cousins in Jacksonville that are chiropractors. Uh, my family knew the Palmers very well. When my grandfather, and, or excuse me, when my great grandfather and them were training in classes with BJ, my grandfather was actually best friends with uh, BJ's son, hmm. and there was a huge, abnormally huge dog that PT Barnum had given to uh, BJ Palmer, and my grandfather and, and BJ's son would ride this dog around campus, and they, they became very, very good friends. <laughs> And, uh, in fact, my grandmother, even, uh, you know, she's still alive, and I love talking to her about the chiropractic history because she always uh, loves to remark about stories that she can still remember, and her mind is sharp as can be. And she tells about how uh, B.J. Palmer used to love to come down to Jacksonville for her southern fried chicken. <laughs> and she could remember all even the side courses of what she made for him. But uh, he loved to go fishing with my grandfather, uh, B.J. Palmer, and his son did. And uh, even one time, BJ fell in the water. He was not a very good swimmer. My grandfather had to jump in and get him. But my family's always loved chiropractic in the Palmer family. We've had a good respect for him. So were all those relatives you mentioned, are they all upper cervical chiropractors? I don't know about the great-grandfather, great-aunt, great-uncle, great-aunt scenario. I would assume that back with the HIO toggle was uh, the dominant technique. I would assume they were part of that. I do know my grandfather was extremely involved in necrostic presentations and the instructing of that, and uh, that's where my father and uncle got their passion. And uh, my father, uh, my family's always been to the concept of advancing chiropractic, advancing atlas adjusting and atlas correcting. And so when my father was uh, good friends with Dr. Roy Sweat, when the necrostic presentations were modifying due to... uh, the death of Dr. Grostick and some family issues with, with titling the seminars. Uh, when, when Dr. Roy was talking about advancing the work to instrument adjusting, my father was right on board because the concept of advancing the work technologically made sense. Mm-hmm. So my family's always been right in the heart of Atlas Care, uh, whether I, I don't know about my great-grandparents, though. What was it like growing up in a uh, chiropractic family that, um, you know, um, you... you you didn't. Your family didn't take the medical route on too many things. I would take it. No, I never had. A, I, I didn't have a medical doctor as a pediatrician or anything like that. No, not at all. I had. Uh, I visited a medical doctor one time when I took a coat hanger to the eye, and I, I thank God for his brilliant hands that helped restore uh, the health of my eye. I had a dentist who treated my uh, love of sugar, and 
the only shot I had growing up was Novocaine. Mm. Never got vaccinated, never had horrible health, uh, worked through childhood diseases very quickly, and uh, always had better health than all of my friends who received vaccinations and were under medical care, but not under chiropractic care. And I always, I was, uh, I was trying to be a big recruiter for my father because I knew I grew up thinking that my father could fix anything. Mm. You know, it didn't matter what the ailment was, because if we had a cold or a, or something, we would just say, "Hey, Dad, check my power. Gotta check my power, Dad. I think I knocked my power off." And he would, uh, he'd get our atlases fixed, and we'd heal and be fine. So I would always uh, re- try to talk with my friends and their families that were struggling with things and then try to get them to go down to my father to uh, have him get their atlas fixed and that would take care of it. So the philosophy's always been natural. It's not it's never been anything worth debating or discussing because my whole life is the philosophy. Right. My health has always been a result of the philosophy working right. So it's a very tangible thing for me. Did uh, your father did he do uh AO when you were growing up, or was he doing Grostic at that time? It was Grostic. I still, we still actually have the uh, the side lying table for Grostic adjusting that he used to do on us when we were little kids. Mm. And I, I do remember when he moved on to the first instrument, because uh, when Dr. Sweat developed the uh, adjusting instrument, he put he developed seven of them and put them in for the field into the field for research. And my father was uh, blessed to be one of the seven original ones requested to utilize the instrument in the field and I still remember it was called Big Ben it had uh, it was huge it was very very big and I remember it actually was an instrument that tried to involve torque tried to involve excursion and uh, but I do still remember the, the old days back before instrument adjustment so so your dad and uh, Dr. Sweat, uh, they go back pretty far, all the way back to Grostic seminars. Absolutely, yeah. Well, what's the uh, story about the Pierces and AO and AOTP? What does AOTP stand for, first of all? AOTP stands for Advanced Orthogonal Techniques and Procedures. Uh, it's got a little play on it also with TP being put in there for transverse process. But. Um, the story is not a story that we ever expected to tell or are happy about. It's, it's not a story we actually even chose to occur. Uh, this is something that was actually forced upon us uh, against our wishes. And the story goes that there were a lot of uh, there were a lot of changes that began occurring back in the late 1990s with the Atlas Orthogonal Program that were of concern. And I do remember noticing these when I was attending advanced seminars, even in 1998, 1999. And when my father would um, respectfully call into question uh, at the board meeting, since he was one of the original board members, and always he didn't miss a single advanced uh, seminar. He was one of the only ones that never missed an advanced seminar um, the entire time that uh, they existed, with the exception of one. That's right, he did miss one. But in 20 years of uh, supporting the group, he had never missed a single advanced seminar. And as a, as a board member, he would bring up these concerns. And um, he was uh, very respectful about it. But we, um, both him and I, noticed that the trend of where the technique was moving was away from the core concepts that it was developed upon. And that was very concerning to us. And my father, although he was... Uh, 
concerned about some things. He was he was still highly respected. He still is respected in the work. And this none of the story involves anything personal between Dr. Sweat and my father, because personally, they still respect each other. My dad still loves Dr. Sweat very much, and they have a cordial relationship when they do talk. But uh, my father was being asked to instruct at the advanced seminars. And he had also been asked by Dr. Sweat to be teaching the fundamental seminars down here in St. Petersburg because there weren't any fundamentals being taught in Florida. And my father is an excellent teacher. He knows how to break down concepts uh, to the nitty-gritty and make them very comprehensive and and detailed and and very understandable. And uh, that was something that doctors and students craved was just to understand this work, to really, really understand it so they could apply it in their practices. And my father became very desirable for uh, instructing. And there were several seminars where he would be instructing and and the majority of attendees would congregate into his classes, uh, whereas uh, people instructing in the other rooms, um, mainly Dr. Sweat and Dr. Matt, they weren't having as many folks attending their classes, and and this was no fault of my father's whatsoever. He was just trying to instruct well, but this was perceived as uh, being uh, an effort on his part to dominate the the seminar, the presentation of it, and that couldn't be anything further from the truth. And then we ran into uh, another problem, because the students were really starting to grab a hold of the passion of this work, and we had an advanced, we had a, a fundamental seminar down here in St. Petersburg, and we would always make sure to never schedule the seminars on the same weekends that uh, Atlanta, uh, Dr. Sweat was having his seminars, or uh, we'd try not to conflict with any, any other seminars being taught as much as possible. But on one weekend, uh, Dr. Sweat happened to change his seminar, and it fell on the same weekend that we were holding one. And uh, we were uh, very excited that we had 23 students in attendance at the seminar that had driven down from Sherman College and Life University. And uh, we found out that same weekend that there had only been six in attendance in Atlanta. Hmm. And that was the, uh, I guess that was the final straw. Hmm. Because uh, we were instructed we were no, lo- no longer allowed to teach the fundamentals. And uh, I don't know. I don't know if it was a popularity thing. I don't know. Uh, I don't know. It's very frustrating uh, as to what happened at that point, but there was there was a switch in mentality of what needed to occur in the Atlas Orthogonal Program. Um, in regards to concepts, you know, we've we've been uh, when my father was asked to uh, step down from the board and uh, basically disassociate from the organization. He, he said he couldn't do that. He, he couldn't choose to disassociate from an organization he'd loved and supported from its beginning. But there was a, there was a, I can't think of a tactful way of saying it, I'll try to, but there was a maneuvering within the board to make sure that his removal was accomplished. Mm. And um, I, I, I appreciate being able to say that it was none of the seasoned veteran doctors that were on the board that had been around this whole time and knew the caliber of my father and the support he had for Dr. Sweat in this organization. None of them were in support of my father's removal. But my father was nonetheless removed by um, influences on the younger board members. And uh, from that point, ironically enough, my father was encouraged by Dr. Sweat to start 
a new seminar series, <clears throat> which was very odd since he had been removed and then encouraged to start teaching. And the, the main comment was, Stan, you have it. This is to my father. He said, Stan, you have a good following, and you've got some interesting ideas. You should teach your own seminars. <clears throat> now, my father was very, um, very, very sad to have been disassociated, not by his choice, but by removal, and uh, not allowed to attend seminars, not invited, and the same effect obviously came on to me, being affiliated with him. Mm. And it was a very, very, uh, it was the most sad time that I can ever recall in my father's life of hurt and, uh, and wishing this was not happening to him. But nonetheless, it was occurring, and all we could do was try to wait it out and see what happened. But the encouragement he received from Dr. Sweat to start a new seminar series was what was so ironic. And the the interesting thing about it is when he was told, you know, you have some good ideas. None of the ideas that we presented in the early development and initiation of the advanced orthogonal program, none of them were ideas that were not already presented before Dr. Sweat and the board, or at least to Dr. Sweat. And any of the ideas that were ever presented, any idea that was ever presented by my father in all of the years, was never commented on. Not this is a good idea, this is a bad idea. It was completely disregarded. Hmm. And that always bothered my father, but his heart was there to just keep encouraging the organization, and he loved Dr. Sweat dearly, and and he just continued to plug away and try to offer ideas. And So that's actually how the AOTP program began. Um, the well, name we, affiliation, which tends to throw people off sometimes, the name affiliation is not that uncommon um, because its fundamental roots of development are similar to the original Atlas Orthogonal Program. Now, I'm not talking about the one currently taught. The one currently taught is, is not even close to the one that was originally developed. Mm. But the Advanced Orthogonal Program is in very close affiliation with many of the principles and fundamentals of the original Atlas Orthogonal Program. And with you know, with orthospinology, the ortho aspect of it, and Atlas Orthogonal, the concept of orthogonality, which is a Grostic-based concept, was maintained. But the advancements that we decided to go ahead and start moving forward with, that Dr. Sweat and that organization did not want to, it just made sense to call it advanced orthogonal. Hmm. When you had uh, uh, mentioned before that there were some things happening in the original program that uh, y'all uh, were questioning, what were some of those things? Well, in the in the original manuals of the Atlas Orthogonal Program, uh, probably one of the biggest issues we had was that in the original uh, program, doctors were always told students, doctors were always told that the instrument adjustment needed to be aimed at the transverse process. And that obviously makes total sense since that is our point of contact. Mm. But the program and uh, Dr. Sweat and the leadership began teaching that's not where to aim. Aim in the tracheus notch. Now, the tracheus notch is not, I mean, that's a cranial feature. That's not part of the atlas. And that made absolutely no sense to aim in an arbitrary location when we're trying to do such precision work. Mm. And that was one of the main questions that was raised. That was uh, that was by far the most dominant one that we had a problem with. But several other changes that were occurring, we, we began hearing... 
Because sure. not everybody is shaped the same? Well, absolutely. I mean, the atlas can be genetically formed more posterior than even maybe sitting inferior to the mastoid tip. And if you throw in a subluxation component where maybe that atlas has a posterior rotation on the side of, of uh, laterality, then you're coming in with a posterior line of drive, and if you aim up in the trachis notch, you're never going to hit that TP. Mm. It's, it's not, it wouldn't even be feasibly possible. Mm. Or if the atlas happens to have developed more anterior, really, really close to the mandible, and if it has an anterior atlas rotation on the side of laterality, well, you're going to be coming in barely off the back edge of the mastoid. If you aim at the tragus notch, you're going to be hitting the posterior arch. You're not going to be hitting the TP. Right. So it's, it's more important, it's most important, to measure exactly where each person's transverse process is compared to the mastoid and mandible, know exactly where you're aiming, and then you also have to factor in the lead for the actual adjustment you're about to do, both the Z and the Y lead. And you do that using all your films. You have to. I mean, you can't palpate it. Even uh, Nuka did a great study on this and found that uh, there was over 60% error when doctors were trying to just palpate where the transverse process was. And there's so many complicating factors, not only the SCM muscle shooting through, but also some people have elongated styloid processes. Sometimes the atlas with uh, platabasia, can, the atlas TP can be very, very high up, and the palpation would be on the C2 TP if the doctor didn't use the films to see the, uh, the platabasia. So there's all kinds of genetic complications as well as subluxation issues that come into play in if you're not aiming at the TP, you're, you're shooting. It's like trying to shoot a bow and arrow blindfolded. Mm-hmm. And if you're not if you're not hitting the atlas with your adjustment, then even if you get it to move, it's probably not going to hold. Well, it's definitely not going to get moved accurately. Right. Because the primary sound wave coming off the stylus is not going to hit the TP. You're going to have a a different aspect of sound wave that's diverging off of that stylus tip that might influence the transverse, but it's not going to be on the coordinates that you obtain from the x-rays. Right. And that issue alone was one of the other problems we had with the change in the technique because we began hearing a concept that was incredibly foreign to us about changing the vectors. And in all Grostic-based techniques, anything mathematically based, especially when Dr. Sweat went through the incredible effort to go and hook up with Georgia Tech Engineering School and get these these vectors refined even more. I mean, I, we can't, I can't tell you how much we respect and applaud him for the amount of effort he did to advance this technique to being so precise originally that the coordinates were so reliable and so accurate. But we began hearing in the mid to late 90s a trend of discussion of not using the x-ray calculations, not using the vectors from the films, instead changing the Z to match a pattern or changing the Z if the patient doesn't seem to clear and changing the Y and changing, 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 changing. And the only science that we have... Math is supposed to be the universal constant. That is our science. And when we saw this trend of discussion from the stage, encouraging doctors to be ready to change coordinates and move away from the science, that was not something we could keep quiet about. And we brought, and my father brought that up in concern to Dr. Sweat. We brought that up in numerous discussions. 
and it was a trend they were going on, and they decided to continue that way. And that's the, that's the dominant trend today, even in the Atlas Orthogonal Program, mm. is the teaching of not using the numbers from the x-rays, but changing the numbers from the x-rays based upon all kinds of different components and variables. Like you can't have a y higher than a z. The y vector is not allowed to be higher than the z vector. Well, what if the x-rays measure that it is? Mm. Well, disregard the numbers. Disregard them. We'll tell you what to use. And that became very frustrating for a lot of doctors that were trying to do scientifically-based work. Because the moment that you move away from the science, you are now guessing. Mm. You may be using educated, experienced guessing, but it is still not as scientific as using the numbers. And then that leads probably into the, the last issue that we had, which was very, very, very frustrating. And that was that one of the z-vector modifications was to raise the z-vector according to a high plane line. And the discussion became that the atlas frontal plane line takes precedence, takes priority over the atlas cephalic displacement, the upper angle. Now, all grostic-based techniques have always used the upper angle to determine the side of laterality. Not Atlas Orthogonal. Atlas Orthogonal in its original development did, but not the way it's being taught now. If the Atlas Frontal Plane Line is three millimeters or higher on one side, that is the side that they will tell you to adjust on regardless of the ACD measurement. And to set a Z according to that high plane line. And that is not, not something that any Grostic-based technique concurs with. None of them agree with that. Hmm. Because the Atlas Frontal Plane Line is the biggest variable on the films. Mm. It's not even a bone-to-bone misalignment measurement. It's strictly the bone to the horizon of the Earth. So that was another big issue that really frustrated us because as much as we were trying to keep our heart affiliated with our, our primary mother group, and we loved Dr. Sweat dearly, and we loved loved going to seminars there just to be affiliated with, with an idea, and the idea was collapsing. And that was very hard to deal with. And, and we were trying to preserve the purity and help encourage the purity of the science to maintain. And uh, it, it was being lost. I have some uh, questions that uh, other doctors have sent in. And you've actually uh, answered uh, several of them just by uh, the answers that you gave uh, a second ago. But I want to go ahead and ask a couple of them here. Um, in in what ways has AOTP improved upon the work of Dr. Sweat? Now, you just explained that uh, a big portion of the Advanced Orthogonal Techniques and Procedures Program is almost a uh, going back to the fundamentals and stressing the fundamentals. But beyond that, in what ways has it improved upon the original AO work? Uh, tremendously. Many, many, many improvements have occurred. To include that um, the posterior arch has always been used as the primary reference on the frontal on the frontal film, as the uh, primary reference of the atlas plane um, from which to compare the angles. But the posterior arch can be aberrant, and aberrancies and measuring genetic aberrancies is a huge component of the advanced orthogonal program, 
and we teach a four-point referencing of the atlas anatomy to find out what is the most consistent plane line in case the arch is aberrant. You have to be able to measure and know that. Uh, we also measure for aberrancies in the skull. If there's dips or dents in the skull in the area that we use our templates, that has to be accounted for. And we, uh, we instruct doctors on how, exactly how to maneuver around the dents for getting the exact frontal cephalic line to represent the center uh, weight bearing of the skull. Uh, we also analyze for uh, C2 surfaces that are higher on one side compared to the other, or if you have inconsistent um, condylar and axial circles, where maybe one side's measuring a 3, the other side's measuring a 4. Well, this has to come into play with the angle of leverage that you're coming in if you want to be able to accurately move the atlas through those circles. Uh, we've also we've also maximized the joint influences and in table placement. This is probably what we're most known for. Uh, in fact, I've, the biggest criticism I've heard of our group is that we're too anal, <laughs> too detailed. And that is that when it comes to subluxation patterns, you know, there's certain expectations that occur, and yet patients hardly come in, hardly ever come in with a completely typical pattern. There's usually one unique feature a spinous that moved different, or a cervical spine angle that's different, or an atlas plane line that went low on a contra pattern. There's numerous different things, posterior atlas and a contralateral pattern. Well, the, the primary atlas orthogonal program does not account for any of these uniquenesses. It doesn't give the doctor any insight on how to modify his procedure, his table placement, to influence a controlled reduction of these misalignments. And our program has completely broken this down into step-by-step -step procedures for controlling uh, the outcome uh, of the post-x-rays and how to modify your table placement for each individual uh, atypical component. So that was, a, that was a very big advancement for a lot of doctors. And any of these uniquenesses that we've developed, implemented in a single practice, will show improvement in the doctor's results. If the doctor can implement all of the improvements, then it's a complete practice-changing experience. It sounds like the improvements could help any upper cervical technique, not just those who are using an instrument to adjust. Uh, we've had uh, NUCA doctors uh, come to our seminars. We were uh, very blessed to have Dr. Uh, Bobby Brooks that came and visited at one of our seminars, and we had a very good exchange with him, and he was, um, he was very pleased with the quality of what he saw existing in our program. And we've had Blair doctors train here, orthospinology doctors come train. And everything that I just mentioned with the uh, the improvements we've made have um, have definitely advanced any grostic-based technique. But like I said, we've even had Blair guys come here and, and try to figure out how to uh, you know, improve their quality of care. But I, actually, the, probably the biggest change, or I shouldn't say change, the biggest development that um, sets us apart is actually a development that we have shared at the Upper Cervical Evolution Seminars, and it is a measuring analysis that is probably one of the closest things that could unify the Blair and orthogonal-based techniques. Because the Grostic-based techniques have always approached things from a center of gravity, skull over cervical spine, atlas-level perspective. The Blair folks come into the scene and say, that's not possible on a lot of people because they have aberrant condyles. In the mid-1990s, my father developed a aberrant condyle analysis program where he 
began studying condyles to find out how aberrancies of the condyle affect the orthogonal concept. And he came to find out that hardly anyone sits completely orthogonal. And there's actually a system out now that's been around for many, many years. We've been, I mean, this is, I've known this since the beginning of my practice back in 2000, that it is a fundamental training in our seminars that you must analyze the entire subluxation pattern, or excuse me, the entire misalignment measurements on the x-rays to find out, out of the ACD, which of that upper angle is genetic misalignment, or excuse me, genetic malformations compared to actual misalignment. Because if the condyles are tilted or are not sitting perpendicular to the center of the skull's weight, and the atlas is matching those condyles, the atlas could never sit perpendicular to the center of the skull's weight because the atlas has to match up to the condyles. Well, there's actually a way to measure that now. And it, it solves so many dilemmas for doctors that are trying to figure out, did I control the post-x-rays well enough? You know, I have, it, even White and Panjabi say that an, the maximum an ACD, an upper angle, can be is 5 degrees. And yet doctors routinely will see people with a 7-degree upper angle or an 8-degree upper angle. What accounts for that is the aberrant condyles. And that alone is probably one of the biggest developments, most impacting developments in upper cervical care that my father could have ever made. And uh, that was that's definitely something that set him apart, giving him a name, if I guess you want to say it that way. Not that he was ever looking for a name. He was just wanting things to get better. But that can be used in any Grostic-based technique, and the Blair doctors are respecting that a lot. Hmm. So there's a good unification that's going on right now in upper cervical, too. But all those improvements, they are. They're, they're very appropriate for any Grostic-based procedure. There's a, a few advancements that are primarily helpful for instrument adjusting, though. And one of those is uh, that we have developed a, a laser Y-vector template that actually helps to align the Y-vector to the patient themselves laying on the table with laser accuracy. And it eliminates the guesswork where a lot of doctors currently without this technology are having to change the Y-vector, change the Y-vector in what's called a backup program. And we've eliminated that component altogether. There is absolutely no guesswork whatsoever anymore with the exact setting of the Y-vector. Could you explain the... Uh, Y-vector uh, instrument a little bit? Well, the concept itself is that... Oh, the instrument itself? Sure. Yeah. Uh, the instrument has a... Let's see, it's a plastic template that has a level uh, on the top of it and a laser in the middle of it and a 90-degree prism at the top of it. And it's got a baseline uh, etched into it with uh, paint and etching. And this baseline has a crosshair in the center of the template that is lined up over the patient's transverse process that has been pre-measured off of the films. And then the baseline of the template is set through the patient's heart palate. And once those two points, the crosshair over the transverse process and the baseline of the template are set across the heart palate, then the level bubble on the top of the template is leveled out, so the template is sitting perfectly flat. And then you press a button that activates a laser, and this laser shoots up the template, reflecting off of a 90-degree prism, and shoots down onto the headpiece, 
on the protractor to tell you exactly where that patient is lying. And that is the starting point for setting the Y vector. Because when they lay down, they may not be perfectly on zero like you would assume? Yeah, actually, uh, that was the last seminar we were allowed to attend in Atlanta. That was one of our fallouts was that there was actually a, uh, a very seasoned doctor who uh, had placed a patient on zero by request. And then this was utilized to find out that the patient was actually almost 15 degrees off of zero. Which is going to change the adjustment quite a bit. <laughs> 15 degrees on that one. Right. And, but even if it was 2 degrees, even if it was 3 degrees, that's still 3 degrees less accurate than it could be. So why not eliminate all these variables and get the human error as much reduced from this as possible? Well, two degrees on one factor is going to have a greater impact on the resultant angle. That's true. Head height angle, what is that all about? Well, the head height angle was a concept that has been, there's several doctors <laughs> that have questioned that over the years, um, but nobody's really acted on it. And uh, back in 2003, it was summer of 2003, I, I started to have a problem when I was setting my patients up that um, I noticed that when they were laying on their side, they were not laying perfectly flat with the table. And I had remembered from the uh, fundamental seminars I'd taken, even out of uh, Atlanta with the Atlas Orthogonal Program, I had remembered that even Dr. Sweat commented that a neutral position for a side-lying patient is if the EOP was one inch above the C7. Now, that means that the patient is laying at an angle up from or away from the actual flatness of the table. But the instrument itself, when you put it at completely zero at vertical, that is 90 degrees, not to the patient, but to the table. So if the patient is lying on their side and they're neutral body position is not lying flat, but instead it's lying angled up, well, for each degree of how much it's angled up, that is error that is about to occur in the alignment of the Z vector to the patient. So that angle itself needs to be measured, and the Z needs to be applied to that angle, not to the table, because we aren't adjusting the table, we're adjusting the patient. Right. And yet we're obtaining the Z vector from the patient sitting as vertical as possible in a chair. And we're saying, if this patient is in this vertical position, then this side angle coming in to fix this atlas needs to be this particular degree. But if that patient lays on their side and they're not laying flat, and we apply that same vector from the instrument, well, the resultant adjustment is going to be the vector from the instrument plus whatever head height angle or deviation from flat that that patient's spine is positioned in. And that's going to be additional error in the actual adjustment. Now, one of the most fun things about this was when I first posed this to my father, um, he had thought about it before, and he said, well, what I want you to do is I want you to put together 30 cases of pre- and post-x-rays where you can prove to me that by implementing this new measurement that you can still control the post-x-rays. Because essentially, with most people even as Dr. Sweat says, lying one, with their EOP one inch above level, the average on this measurement is about a 10-degree distortion, where the patient is not lying flat. They're averaging about 10 degrees up. 
So essentially, this concept was meaning that most instrument Z settings were going to have to be lowered. And that concept is in direct opposition to the generalized changes that are occurring in instrument adjusting of just cranking up the Z, throwing it up to 25 degrees. So I showed him pre-post, and I didn't get 30 cases together. I gave him 110 cases. <laughs> and uh, he, he uh, as soon as he saw the number of cases, he said, you're very serious about this. Uh, I said, yes, sir. And we reviewed it together, and he reviewed the concepts with me, and, and we both agreed that it was worth looking into more. And we began implementing that in our practice as a standardization. And not only did it make sense mathematically, but the results were even better. And we saw our patients adjusting even better and holding even better, which only makes sense since we're removing human error. And then what became even more exciting was when we began teaching this, then we had doctors, even young doctors, just starting up their practices that were implementing all these different measurements, all these additional measurements to remove human error. And guys fresh out of school were nailing home run adjustments time after time after time. And the biggest problem they were running into was they were getting people holding so quickly for so long that they didn't have, they needed to invest more time in educating the patient on wellness because their practices were, were staying uh, slimmed out. They weren't seeing a volume of ongoing adjusting patients because they were getting people adjusted so well they were holding. And it was an interesting dilemma for the doctors to run into, but boy, the confidence they had in their work was astounding. Mm. Then they just had to learn how to really educate the patient to get referrals. Mm. What is the axial x-ray? Well, the axial x-ray is, is, a con is an x-ray that was taken off of a concept of study that was done by Dr. Sweat as well as uh, Dr. David Nygaard in North Carolina, where they were talking about that if you look across the C2 surface with an x-ray, and then you distort the angle of view on that axis surface by 10 degrees, that you can change the appearance of the axial circles. And when it's uh, viewed all the way, that for every 10 degrees, it changes the measurement of the axial surface approximately one inch in diameter. Well, that would calculate to over five degrees of wrong analysis if you weren't looking across the C2 surface on the exact plane that it is sitting. So when doctors were looking on the frontal films to try to study the C2 surfaces, they were looking across the C2 surfaces not on the, not on the angle that the C2 was sitting, but they were looking across it at the angle that the atlas was sitting. And the C2 is different from the condyles in its circular shape in that the condyles are cupped all the way anterior to posterior as well as um, sideways. But the C2 surfaces are circular but don't cup anterior to posterior. So we became intrigued in the concept of looking straight across the C2 surfaces. And we began to measure... The, the angle, the exact angle that the C2 surface itself was sitting. And if that angle deviated from the angle we were going to take our frontal x-ray at, then it became appropriate to take an additional angle 
uh, an additional x-ray on the angle that the C2 surface was sitting in order to properly view the axial circles. So that's what the axial x-ray is. It's actually an x-ray to see the exact surface of C2 because the C over A component of the condylar and axial circle measurement is the one that will determine the greatest impact on what kind of height that adjustment needs. Mm. And it was kind of interesting. I was through uh, a seminar in, uh, in Atlanta, a board certification seminar, where this discussion came up. And we had already been doing the axial x-ray for uh, several years. And I, I posed this thought to Dr. Sweat that it, it would seem to make the most sense to look at the C2 surface right across the surface that it's sitting. And uh, he said, yeah, that seems like a good idea. And I, I mentioned how we do it or the concept of how to do it, and he said, yeah, that seems like an interesting idea. Why don't you, uh, well, work on that and let me know how it goes. Yeah. And I said, well, actually, we've already been using it for the last two years, and it's been working out great. You can see the C2 surface is much clearer. We're able to measure those axial surfaces much more um, accurately, and our results are better. And I was waiting for the response, and the response was, well, we'll keep working with it. <laughs> And I found that frustrating because, like every other advancement that my father tried to offer to the Atlas Orthogonal Program, the concept always was we're open to new ideas. We want to hear from you. And Dr. Sweat would make comments of, you know, the next generation is going to take this work further. It's going to take it to the next level, further than we've taken it. And we're trying. You know, we really, really are trying. And a lot of doctors can't say that. You know, a lot of doctors are so busy just trying to manage their practices that they can't really invest a lot of time in teaching and researching and working through concepts. We're trying very hard, and yet no matter what advancements we've posed, they just have not been seriously evaluated. And fortunately, that doesn't exist with the rest of the upper cervical world because we're, uh, we're enjoying a nice developing relationship with both orthospinology and NUCA where we're actually starting to unite our concepts and we're talking about um, trying to move towards standardizing all grostic-based procedures in x-ray taking, x-ray analyzing, and table placement. Mm. And at least the negotiations are beginning. At least the discussions are starting because that's always been a problem, is that you figure there's got to be one right way of doing this, and the only art to it is whether you want to adjust the atlas by hand, handheld instrument, or table instrument. So we're, we're excited about the direction things are going. It's a very optimistic, upbeat direction. And uh, the only unfortunate thing is that we haven't been allowed to do this as part of the Atlas Orthogonal Program, which would have been our preference. Right. Uh, and we've ne we never, ever wanted to deviate away from the program, ever. Is there anything specific that you're working on right now? Well, there's a couple of ideas that are, are on, the, uh, on the, the discussion block, and one of them is... You know, we have the we have a very accurate way of measuring the aberrancies of the condyles on the frontal film to determine how much of the upper angle, the ACD, how much of that is just due to the atlas matching up underneath aberrant condyles compared to the rest of it being misalignment. But we do not have a way of measuring that same type of concept on the horizontal X-ray. So we're in, we're in discussions. We're trying to figure out the best way of being able to. It might take a CT scan. It might take something, some technology similar to that, in order to be able to see 
if the condyles are have a rotational genetic anomaly to them that the atlas is having to match to, and then the misalignment beyond that. Because it's not it's not that it would necessarily change our line of drive, because if the atlas is sitting underneath genetically rotated condyles and it's rotated, well, that's still going to be the angle you have to come in with the force to move the atlas. However, the expectations of how much of that rotation should improve would be modified based upon measuring how much rotation occurs in the condyles on that plane. So that is a that is a not something that's necessarily in the public domain of discussion in orthogonal chiropractic, but that's something we're looking into. And can you tell us some differences about the uh, table that you guys use? Sure, I'd be happy to. Uh, well, the origin of the table, I think it would be appropriate for me to start off by saying where that came from, because one of the, the biggest uh, rumors that we've heard promulgated around the country is that in some way we've, we've set our goals to trying to steal out with orthogonal or compete in the instrument market or, or something to that effect. And we never, ever wanted to be involved in instrument manufacturing, never. And we, we just didn't, we're, we're too busy with all the other things we're involved with that we didn't want to get into that. Unfortunately, like the starting of the Advanced Orthogonal Program, we didn't have a choice. Because uh, what happened was, uh, when my father was being uh, loaded off of the board in his final statement, he requested that whatever is being done to him, he would he, he would receive it. But he requested that any of the students or young doctors that had been training and learning the uh, orthogonal program from him while he was permitted to be teaching it, that none of them would be punished in any way, that they would receive the credit for the seminars they had attended, and they would receive the credit for all the training that they had gone through, and that they would be allowed to purchase instruments and, and be affiliated with the organization. And, and Dr. Sweat, uh, in his uh, comment in this meeting, said, uh, in follow-up to my father's request, they will be. Well, we ran into a problem about six months after this occurrence with his removal from the board and, and this statement. Uh, that anybody that was training with us during any of this whatsoever was not being allowed to buy anything. They weren't being allowed to purchase tables. They weren't being allowed to attend seminars. They weren't being allowed to do anything affiliated with the organization unless they went back and sat through all the fundamental seminars again in Atlanta. And doctors were incredibly frustrated by this because they were about to go into practice. Young doctors, new graduates, were about to go into practice and needed equipment. And they were being refused equipment. So at that point, we realized we have a problem. Because if if doctors are going to train and be well-educated and know how to fix the atlas but do not have access to the equipment because they will not be – because somebody won't sell them equipment, then we're going to have to provide it to them. And so what we did was we took the table that everyone in Atlas Orthogonal knows and has always talked about, has been the best table ever produced. It's called Spinalite. And it was a fantastic table that, uh, that had a very clean adjusting solenoid, a very stable table mount, and uh, it was always well known for the results that it was able to achieve and the purity of delivery. And we took a spinal line table we were, and we uh, hired a company to reverse engineer it because spinal line at that point had um, 
although they had started manufacturing tables, uh, they were still manufacturing tables. We wanted them to, re we had uh, the table reverse engineered to allow for modifications to be made to it. Because Spinalite actually had gone under when Life University uh, hit, the C hit the the CE accreditation problem, mm -hmm. and that caused Spinalite to go under. And so we were just working with TA Cox, and we ended up from that point having to reverse engineer the table in order to allow another company to build it because uh, we weren't able to access the, uh, the, specif the specs on the original table. So when we, re when we reverse engineered it, we decided that if we're going to go through another hassle of having to provide equipment, well, like everything else we try to do, we're going to do it as best as possible. So there was over 30 table modifications that were made, and, and the highlights of the table modifications would include the shoulder piece is motorized to allow for an anterior and posterior movement as well as superior and inferior movement so that when the doctor is lying the patient down on their side and they're trying to get these joint influences of table placement, that they can simply press a button. Actually, it's a joystick now. And you simply touch a joystick and the patient is gently eased into position. So there's no more reaching around the patient, having to lift them up, having to shove their shoulders. Not only big patients, but also patients that are in pain, you can gently ease them with a motorized shoulder piece. And it saves a lot of effort on the doctor's part, too. Another modification was that the one of the complications with most uh, instrument uh, and most instruments that were manufactured was that the if you had a very tough ipsilateral pattern, a very strong pattern where you had to get the shoulder up as high as possible to leverage that cervical spine to come towards neutral, uh, the support rod for the mastoid was vertical right underneath the mastoid. Um, rubber. So you would end up jamming the shoulder into that metal support and not able to get the full influence for the ipsilateral patterns. And this is well documented not only in doctors knowing this, but also even from, I remember Dr. Sweat would say, you know, we prefer to adjust contralateral patterns. We just prefer to work with contras. But one of the reasons he was saying this is because the ipsilateral patterns were harder to get the influence on because you couldn't draw the shoulder up high enough. So we've modified the support of the uh, mastoid, uh, the headpiece. We've modified that support to include uh, approximately a 30 to 45 degree angle where it gives you more room underneath that headpiece to get the ipsilateral shoulder up. And that's uh, been a great feature for being able to control the ipsy patterns better. The solenoid itself, though, we still kept the same purity of the solenoid that, that Spinalite had. It was a brilliant purity back then. It still is. And it's just a nice, sweet, uh, gentle adjustment. And the mastoid rubber, we have used a closed cell rubber. Um, it's uh, the top of the line. That's not been an issue for anybody for a long time, because that was actually an upgrade that we made. It was, uh, it didn't bounce as uh, as much force back. It actually stabilized the mastoids better. So we used an open cell rubber. I mean, a closed cell rubber. Excuse me. And of course, you still have the handicap access. Um, of the vertical lift of the table. Oh, and there's one other feature. Sorry, I forgot about this. And that's that the the actual instrument and the instrument arm, there is a foot pedal now to raise and lower the instrument's height. And that allows you to keep your hands accessing, moving the patient's ear away, moving the instrument in place. 
and with the touch of a foot pedal, it can gently raise and lower the instrument. So it saves the doctor a lot of time, and it, produ- it provides him a lot more control over the actual placement of the instrument. I guess those are the main features. Tell us uh, about the uh, AOTP uh, seminar series. Well, we hold, we've consolidated the fundamental seminars from the Atlas Orthogonal Program more down into a concept of three fundamentals because the, uh, the intensity and clarity by which we teach can allow the information to file into doctors' heads much more purely, much cleaner. So we can actually get through most of the fundamental information in three seminars. And the Fundamental One seminar includes all the aspects of x-ray placement, including the axial x-ray, as you asked about earlier. It also includes troubleshooting all antalgic and postural irregularities in patients, like if you have a very kyphotic older patient, you know, how are you going to modify the x-ray placement to still get a clear, clean x-ray for analysis? Or if you have a patient with torticollis or uh, uh, a kid who is unable to sit still really well, we talk about all these, these different trouble cases and how to adapt the procedure for these cases. We also talk about all the double-check systems to make sure that your x-ray was a perfect placement. Uh, we talk about the leg check, supine leg check, as well as palpation of the C2 dorsal root ganglia as primary criteria for uh, the patient being subluxated at the atlas level. And we go through very intricate detail on how to do those correctly. So that's fundamental one. Fundamental two has to do with all of the x-ray analysis, all of the uh, double and, and uh, triple checking from x-ray to x-ray to find the exact anatomy, to make sure that the anatomy points that you're selecting are accurate, how to take out all the genetic problems of a patient in the analysis, not that you're removing the genetics, but you're taking that out of the equation by analyzing and measuring those. So all the condyle, uh, the measuring for aberrant condyles, the dents in the head, aberrant masses, aberrant posterior arches, aberrant C2 surfaces, inconsistent condyle axial circles, all of those different components, all of it, including the standardized, the standard analysis. All of that is taught in a single weekend. It is a very, very intense seminar. And then the third seminar is uh, all about the table placement and instrument alignment. And it also is incredibly intense because most doctors, uh, their concept of table placement is to just put the mastoid up on the headpiece and aim the instrument and the joint influences are not being aligned or influenced as well as they could be to respond and even a better outcome on the post-x-rays. So we break it down intricately, intricately. And it's taught, although the, the, the filing of the data is taught at a level where even a first-timer could understand it, these last fundamentals we had, we had nothing but experienced doctors that were here. Going through the fundamentals again to be able to refine their procedures even better and I can't tell you the excitement that they have uh, come out of these seminars with. They're so they're so incredibly excited to know why and how to do their work better. So it's been very encouraging. The advanced seminars we hold twice a year, uh, and the topics can range anywhere from post-X-ray interpretation to um, different aspects of managing an atlas practice to. Uh, case studies, which is not too often, but we have case studies periodically that we'll put in, as well as um, 
many highlights of the fundamentals. So we try to we try to pick some highlights, like the advanced seminar in October will have a lot of aspects of measuring aberrancies. Um, so each seminar will try to highlight some aspect of the fundamentals and, and really uh, try to produce some insight. But the, the best thing a doctor can do or a student can do is, is sit through the fundamentals. That's the absolute best thing they can do to get their practice either relaunched in quality or started off with good quality as a, as a, a new doctor just getting ready to open up. Uh, the basic seminars, are. do you just offer those uh, once throughout the year? There's one, one, and one, two. Uh, we actually run the three basics two times a year. Um, the next basics, uh, fundamental one, is July 12th through 13th. Uh, fundamental two is August 9th through 10th. And fundamental three is September 6th through 7th. And those are all held at uh, your clinic? Yeah, so we actually have we have a, uh, a lecture hall in the back that we when, we, when we designed this clinic, we designed it specifically with the purpose of being able to provide top quality delivery in our seminars as well. So we have a lecture hall in the back that has all the multimedia presentations. Everything we do is on advanced PowerPoint uh, with PowerPoint animations. And uh, we not only hosting it here is an excellent idea for the doctors to be able to see the advancements in the quality of delivery, but also we've advanced with, uh, this is one of the advancements I should have mentioned earlier. I might want to put this in, but is uh, we've gone completely digital with our x-ray analysis program, completely digital. Doctors can still come and learn the information from Fundamental 2 and apply it to plain film x-ray study, but we were the first um, orthogonal clinic in the nation, actually the first Atlas clinic in the nation to go digital with our x-ray analysis, and uh, that was through a company called VizTech with uh, Dr. Mark Pierce, my cousin, and uh, John Overcash worked with them to get this system in development, and it is fantastic. It's fantastic, and it has been a huge, huge upgrade in the quality of orthogonal chiropractic. So all of your analysis is now digital? Completely. And the uh, program, it does all your calculations for you and everything? All of it. It's a, it. Not only is it higher quality, but you can magnify images, you can change the contrast, you can invert the contrast, you can pixelate the bone structure, you can... Um, you can cross-reference from film to film so easily. You can pull, you can draw TPs out almost in density on the sagittal film. You can actually change the contrast and actually see the transverse process poke out clear as day, and you know exactly where it is in reference to the mastoid and mandible. Hmm. I mean, there's so many benefits to the digital X-ray, and the time it saves you. Even though you've got all these advancements of being able to see the structure and get better measurements, the time that it saves you is incredible. And yet your quality's higher. So it, it's an absolute no-brainer for us. As soon as I saw the system, and my father and I talked about it, we, we went for it right away. It made total sense, and we have never, ever regretted it. It's a fantastic system. And John Overcast is really the one that uh, that we work through to get that for our doctors. He, he's done a great job for upper cervical and orthogonal chiropractic for many years. So. What can you uh, tell us about the boot camp? <laughs> the boot camp. That is my most fun project. I absolutely love the boot camp. The boot camp is a one-week intense coverage of every single detail of an Atlas orthogonal, advanced orthogonal clinic. It has all of the concepts that went through basic fundamentals in orthogonal work 
plus all the advanced concepts in X-ray uh, taking, X-ray analysis, table placement, aligning the instrument, post-X-ray interpretation, follow-up visits. It also includes con uh, concepts of, that you want to relay as an Atlas specialist in consultation, concepts that you want to relay as an Atlas specialist in report of findings, how to use these times to stimulate referrals, how to separate yourself as an Atlas specialist where these patients are excited to get their Atlas adjusted, um, it covers examination procedures that even if a patient comes in with sciatic nerve pain or low back disc bulge, by the time they leave your exam room, they want their atlas x-rayed and fixed. Uh, it also covers the spinal health class that we teach as well as after we've covered all of this information and we test our doctors as, or uh, young doctors as they're going through this, this program, we test them at intervals during the course of the week to make sure they are processing all the information. And then the final day on Friday, we do practice shadowing where we have them now see what they have studied very hard and learned. They now see it actively implemented in the active practice. And they follow in each area of the clinic, and they get to see all of these now being performed. And it gives not only a textbook knowledge base, but also a visual representation that just concretes the data into their heads. And at the end of the boot camp, if people have been able to pass the testing with a high enough mark, then we allow them to sit for testing for certification. And the certification that we offer is the hardest certification in orthogonal chiropractic. The only passing mark is 100%. There is no, there is no mark that will pass you besides 100% knowledge. Because if you don't know, 10% of the work, or if you get an 80%, that means you didn't know 20% of the work. We are not certifying people that don't know the work. So it's going to be a certification that means something. People are going to be able to really be proud of the certification. It won't be an attendance certification. It won't be a matter of paying a bunch of extra money just to have some credentials. It's actually going to be a, a certification that means you can produce results. So that's what the boot camp is. And the, the benefit to the doctors is it consolidates actually five separate seminars because it, it takes into account all the things we would cover at two advanced seminars as well as all three fundamentals. It takes all five of those seminars, consolidates it down into one incredibly intense week. So it saves the doctors a ton of money because they don't have to keep making all the flight arrangements and hotel accommodations. It saves them a ton of time and it's organized so well that it just files into their brains and when they leave here, they are never going to be the same, ever. And I don't care what level they came in at. They could be a brand new doctor. They could be an experienced field doctor. They will not be the same after that. They will be so much more passionate and excited about chiropractic and Atlas chiropractic and able to deliver results even better. And the what, what is the date for the boot camp this year? The boot camp is June 22nd through 28th, so it's coming up very quickly. Is there a we deadline? Keep, we do keep limited seating on it to try to keep as uh, as close one-to-one -one, um, uh, uh, teacher-to-attendee uh, status. So that's uh, it's coming up very soon. Yeah, is there a deadline for when they would need to register? Well, I would definitely have to receive um, within the, within a week mm -hmm. from now, to be honest with you. Because I've got to prepare, I've got to prepare for the number of people we have, and if we if we have uh, more attending, I have to be able to contact other lecturers to assist, so we can make sure we've got the quality of staying up with the number of attendees. So by, I'd say no later than June 10th, 
we would have to know uh, of who's coming. And right now we've got a good, good core group coming that I'm very excited about. Stan, if the doctors want more information uh, about anything at all, uh, who should they contact? Uh, well, they can contact me with pretty much any questions at all or or uh, ideas or thoughts they have. And, and my email is uh, drstan, D-R-S-T-A-N, at advancedorthogonal.com. We just got our uh, our clinic website up and running, and we'll be modifying that to include all of our seminar information. And that is uh, www.advancedorthogonal.com. And one other website would be uh, Seminar Info at AdvancedOrthogonal.com. Uh, that's an email? Seminar? Yes. Seminar Info at AdvancedOrthogonal.com. Okay. Well, very good. Well, thank you very much for doing this. Well, I appreciate your, uh, you taking the time to find out some history on things. Yeah. And I, I look forward to uh, finding out how, uh, how your program's going. I'm very excited about what you're doing. And... Uh, the newsletter idea that you have going on it, it looks fantastic and I'm very very pleased to see somebody taking the uh, taking the bull by the by the horns and trying to help practices stabilize and and uh, have that patient interaction that doctors want but don't necessarily have the time to produce so thank you for what you're doing too oh, well thank you all right Stan well thank you very much all right Paul you have a good evening you too all right bye